What's up, peeps? Before you get into the episode, just a quick message. Did you know that Rebranded Safety is brought to you by Risk Fluent? Rebranded Safety is essentially our campaign to achieve our purpose, which is to make the working world better by Rebranded Safety one interaction at a time. We value a people-centered approach that delivers positive impact on the risk. We deliver three types of services, technical, transformational, and fire. It's the last show I wanted to talk to you about. If you value what we value and you want some support driving a culture change or decluttering your safety systems, or you want to improve human performance and it's our transformational support that can help you, or maybe you want a highly experienced registered fire risk assessor to carry out an assessment on your building, design an emergency plan or review the fire safety design for your new building, then it's our fire support service that can help you. But before you get in touch with us, it's important that you want to have impact on the actual risk and you value a people-centered approach. If you don't, that's fine. You'll find someone that can help you. But if you do value those, then get in touch with us at riskfluentltd.com or email me, james, at riskfluentltd.com. But for now, I'll let you get into the episode. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Today we're talking to an amazing gentleman who has wrote an amazing book, and we've just read it in the book club of Project Miletium, and we had a great chat, and he made us a lovely little video uh, message to all of our members at Project Miletium. And then I said, hey, come on, come on the podcast. And he said, yep, straight up. So I was like, yes. So let's jump into the intro, and I'll tell you some more about it. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution or one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety. Crushing a stereotype. Brought to you by Risk What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is the YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on Tim. We're here to change the perception of health and safety. So if you're new here, hit that subscribe button and the bell and all those other things. So today we're talking to an amazing gentleman called Chris Clearfield, who wrote the book, co-authored the book, uh, Meltdown. I've read Meltdown. We've just read it at Project Meletium's uh, book club. I really enjoyed it. I kind of found the book was kind of like a gateway book to um, complexity theory, social, uh, technical systems and tight coupling, which a few years ago would like blow my mind and be like, oh, what? what is that? Well, isn't safety just about checklists and stuff? It's a great book and I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, this conversation is, is an even more of an insight into the book, uh, maybe the future, the next steps, and also a bit more of we go, in, we go pretty in-depth in on, in on a social technical system. What is it? What does that mean? And so on and so forth. But before we get into the conversation, do a quick shout out to our sponsors. Thank you very much, Paradigm Human Performance HSC Subscription Service for sponsoring Rebrand and Safety. Paradigm's HSC Subscription Service is a perfect solution for SME businesses, those ones that are just absolutely ramo, spinning, spinning all the plates, juggling all the balls, and sometimes safety can fall by the wayside. But ultimately, when it hits a proverbial fan, you're not in a great position. So this solution from Paradigm is all about nailing down your industry and regulatory compliance, but also putting worker safety at the DNA 
of what you do. This is not your off-the-shelf typical compliance package that's just going to give you a load of paperwork. This is a compliance system, a subscription service that's provided by human and organizational performance experts. So this has got new view woven in throughout. This isn't the kind of thing you're going to have to declutter in a few years. This is going to really help you understand how to build capacity to fail. It's going to understand human error. It's going to help you be compliant, but it's going to help you understand how to utilize the worker subject matter expertise. So if this sounds right for you, you can contact them straight away and the email address and phone number in the description below. Or if you're still not sure, you can go to their website. And if you go to their website, check out the learning organization webinar hosted every Thursday at 2pm, where one of the paradigm team or Teresa herself has great open emergent conversations with so many different professionals academics and so on and the best thing is once you've signed up you can get access to all of the back content as well nearly over probably over two years worth of content in there now i'm there nearly every thursday if i can fit it in um so i'll see you there okay without further ado let's get into my conversation with the legendary chris clearfield i'll let you press continue on the new update on zoom i'm not a fan of that if i'm honest me all. neither i don't like it I liked having the responsibility myself just to let you know that you're being recorded. Right. I don't need you to tell me anyway, whatever. Um, Chris, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, James, I'm excited to, to be here. Excited to be chatting with you. Oh, I'm looking forward to it, mate. Are we um, we kind of connected because we, re we wrote, we wrote, we read, there we go. We read uh, Meltdown at the Project Meletian Book Club and, and you were very kind to kind of send us a video and we've we literally had the book club Wednesday this week because we had we actually meant to have it like a, a month ago um but so many people couldn't make it we did like a rollover and we just said let just let's keep this book for another month like and we'll talk about it next month um so actually we are you know it's fresh in my brain all the kind of conversations that we had so yeah, this has Great. worked out really well um but first before we get into it why don't you introduce yourself, Chris, and then and then probably an introduction uh, introduction to the book as well, and then we'll kind of get into it from there. That sounds great. Um, yeah, my name is Chris Clearfield, um, and what I do is I really support um, expert leaders, people who are you know lawyers, uh, engineers, um, software people. I, I support them as they guide transformational change. Um, in their company, in their fields. Uh, and I've come to this work by sort of realizing what an important, how much change we need to have in, in the world. And that really connects back to what you just said, which is my work around the, the this book, Meltdown. So um, it's a book I wrote with a, my co-author, Andras Tilchik, and it is all about the ways the world is getting stunningly more complex. And the fundamental ways that that changes how we need to operate. And um, I think you as somebody with a, a safety hat on, uh, you know, th this is something that you all have been talking about and seeing for a long time. And I think what, what we tried to do in Meltdown is really make the case that complexity is an important thing to pay attention to. And, and in fact, the, the tools for working with complexity are, are, are fundamentally different than the tools of working in a kind of normal linear system. And so I'm excited to get into kind of all of this with you today. Awesome. I, I, I felt like the book, Chris, was like a really good kind of gateway book to, to people that are 
like especially in my profession like it was easy reading but it was like some bits were quite complex but you kind of you and andros kind of tied it really well into some real life examples and not just like this is how they do it in aviation and this is nuclear and this is oil and gas which is so not relatable for so many people but like the examples of like this is buying a new house and and stuff like that and i was just like i can totally relate to that and i thought do you know what this book for me is like if i need to get operational leaders to think more about kind of complexity and tight coupling and 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 kind of their operation their their business as a system i thought do you know what i'd give them that book and say just just go and read that for a bit and then we'll then we'll meet in the boardroom and have a chat well and i i I think you know i appreciate you saying that and i think that you're really sensing something that was really very intentional in how we did the book and you know andres and i have been working together uh kind of and we've been thinking about these issues and we've been doing consulting for years before we wrote the book. And I think one of the things we both saw is that, you know, this was not a discussion that you could have through data, right? Like you, I, I would see risk professionals who had a really, or safety professionals who had a really, um, you know, strong background, try to use data to convince their leaders to think differently. And, yeah. and it just, it, it just never landed. And so one of the things we really realized is that, gosh, this has to be, we've, we've got to do this work through stories. And, and um, because we're both very, um, I mean, Andrash is a serious scholar. He's got a Harvard PhD in sociology. Um, I'm a very kind of scientific guy. Um, we knew we didn't want to use stories to, um, to bamboozle people. You know, we, we knew that every story we told, we knew that we really wanted to be able to tie it back to a set of principles, tie it back to peer-reviewed research. And so we kind of try to, I, I, I was describing this to somebody the other day, like we wrote a book that I think manages to be accessible, manages to kind of advance um, some theory, but also be read by actual business executives who, to, who don't read, you know, this kind of academic stuff. And, mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that, that we kind of managed to, to, to do both and. Mm. Yeah. It, I mean, I, I much prefer it. I really struggle with some of the academic writing when I'm like, what does that look like in reality? Or I listen to them talking, I'm like, but I, I need a tangible example as that. And I, and I thought for me, the book did that really well. So, so hats off to you. Cheers. Thank you. Was there like a, was, was a book and you, you kind of said you and Andrew have worked together for a long time. Was a book just a natural next step or was there like a moment where you were like, we need, we need a book. It really was a natural next step and it, and it very much happened organically. Um, uh, he and I, Andras and I in 2015, um, so to take a step back, my background before doing this work was I was a derivatives trader in finance. So I was, um, you know, trading derivatives, pricing, pricing risk, uh, and then eventually moved into more of a risk, risk and kind of legal compliance role where I was sort of looking more holistically, mm-hmm. systemically at risk. And, and that was kind of just right through the financial crisis. So I really had this front row seat to, you know, this whole industry that was struggling, uh, struggling to manage risk in a way that was, um, I'll say, adaptive to, to the changing circumstances. And I got really interested in that moment about why some organizations were able to manage this risk better while others really struggled. And I was also learning to fly. So I was reading a lot about aviation. 
Um, but it really was when when uh, when Deepwater blew up, when 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 BP had the Macondo Prospect accident, that for me it was like, oh, I, I looked into that, I, I I researched that, I dove into that as it was uh, as it was happening and afterwards, and it was like, oh, this is the same thing as the financial crisis. It's just a very different industry, and this is a much more important problem than just like how do we reduce you know how do we reduce risk for the Goldman Sachs of the world. This is like, everybody is affected by this. So that was really this turning point for me when I said, all right, so my, you know, this is my work. I'm going to figure out how to make an impact, um, helping people think through this fact that helping people work with this idea that complexity is really this central issue. Um, and so Andres and I did a lot of work together and he was just finishing his PhD at the time um, in organizational behavior. So we kind of came together uh, with this, um, he uh, created a course at the business school he was teaching at, which is the, the Rotman School at the University of Toronto, um, called Catastrophic Failure in Organizations. So we were getting a lot, we were having lots of cool discussions with, um, you know, managers who are actually doing this stuff, who are maybe going back to get their MBA. Um, and then five years after Deepwater, we wrote uh, a piece for The Guardian, just about how, you know, it, the, the thesis of the piece, and I'm just going to paraphrase because it's been a long time since I've read it, uh, <laughs> was basically, you know, look, there are these surface changes, but the underlying, we haven't changed the underlying system, and, and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got encouragement from the, the person who helped us place that. Uh, we got encouragement from him. He said, you know, the, the Financial Times and McKinsey run this contest about business book proposals you guys might be interested in entering. And so we thought about it and we we decided that it was it was the time for us to kind of try to write something that was a little bit more holistic rather than just kind of going on a on a piecemeal issue. And we we wrote the proposal, we ended up winning the contest, you know, and then the, the kind of book was was the next step for that. So oh that's um, cool. Yeah, it was a, it was a cool, like you know, 10 years ago I didn't set out to say I want to write a book, but it mm. it just was it felt clear that that was the, the the next step that we needed to take to kind of keep engaging and to sort of raise our impact uh, with yeah. this stuff. That sounds like a really interesting dynamic between a kind of sociologist and a kind of financial risk guy, if I've kind of summarized that quite well. That must have been a really interesting dynamic, the two of you kind of looking at things. Yeah, it's it's a it's been a great dynamic, and you know we're friends. We've known each other for a long, long time, so so that really helps. Um, but you know, I've always been a science geek, a kind of you know engineering, read physics and biochemistry in university, uh, and and Andras has always been sociology. But but you know he's 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 very clever, and so he gets things very quickly, and so he he kind of he gets the system stuff in a very deep way, and. Um, and my dad is a sociologist. So I actually grew up in a kind of, you know, in a household that was, I mean, I didn't think of it at the time, of course, but it was sort of, it was a sociology first household, if you will. Like we were always talking about organizations and bureaucracy and, you know, what's this, what's the role of this, what's this organization actually doing and, and all of this stuff. In fact, um, I was just talking with somebody about, cause, cause now change is a big focus of mine. I was just talking about somebody about all the research of, of uh, adoption diffusion, um, you know, how, how do new ideas get adopted? And uh, the, the kind of seminal work is by a guy called Ev Rogers, 
who um, wrote a book that looked at agriculture as the kind of one of the substrates for how how adoption happens or doesn't happen. Um, and my dad worked with Ev Rogers. And so like, I feel like I've been sort of, you know, marinating in this, in this <laughs> worldview for a long time. And then, I mean, and we talked a little bit about this uh, around the book club stuff, but, you know, I think that we can talk about meltdown in terms of complexity. There's, you know, we can talk about it in terms of systems thinking, but I think at the root of it, um, a contribution that we don't actually voice in the book, but I think is really a central part of what the contribution is, is that, you know, a lot of these things that look like technical problems are actually socio-technical problems. You know, improving safety looks like, look, you know, look, boys, just get on board, start doing it in this way. Like you can, you can get the kind of engineering level of it, but to really go from where you are now to where you want to be, you've really got to pay attention to the social aspects of it and to the human aspects of it too. Like why do humans get stuck where they are? What's useful about the current state of the world to people. And so, you know, as at kind of after now that Meltdown has landed and now that, you know, people are reading it and engaging with it and we're doing work inside companies around it, the kind of, I think for me, the opportunity that I'm seeing is like, oh, people are, people really want to change. Uh, and, and a lot of people are kind of have a sort of vague dissatisfaction with the state of the world now, but, but actually helping them change is really, really hard. And so, um, that's the work that I'm most excited about these days. So I, I want to kind of go in on that point around that kind of social tech, socio-technical system, because that was a bit of, um, I think, you, I think, you know, Adam Johns, or he definitely knows. Yes. You, yes. He mentioned I, yes. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. And, um, cause I was, I, I put on, on LinkedIn that we were reading a book and, and he messaged me saying, Oh, if you, I, if you want to talk to Chris, I can, I can connect you. I was like, I've already got it, mate. It's, it's fine. It's fine. And um, but it was actually Adam Johns that, that was the first person to ever kind of say to me, you know, really work as a kind of socio-technical system. And I remember just kind of nodding and smiling, but then Googling what the hell is a socio-technical system. Right. And, and I was just, and it was brand new to me. But then as I kind of start looking into that stuff and and, and I'm, I'm a bit like, Do you know what, this this makes a lot more sense um, when you start looking at that whole organization of the system. Um, that's both social and technical, but fit, fit from, would you mind kind of explaining what a social technical system is in the concept of work for those of us that don't know? Yeah. Well, I, and you're, and you're, you're, I mean, highlighting something that I think is part of the part of um, why this isn't the way that everybody thinks naturally. Right. It's because it's like a very wonky word and like, it's mm. like, <laughs> how, you know, like, what does that even mean? Right. And, and I think that, you know, Right. So work gets done by people. I mean, that's where you can kind of start with. Right. And so anytime work gets done by people, that's that's part of it. The other part of it is that organizations are perfectly adapted to solve to be in the exact situation that they're in right now. Right. They're adapted to be good at solving the problems that they can solve right now. They're adapted to be bad at solving the problems that they're bad at solving at. And and. I think one way to say that is there's a real no matter how what your organization does there is a real value in it operating in the way that it does otherwise it wouldn't be operating that way and so and, and I think that's that's a real helpful starting point to think about this stuff it's not to say that there's not cost to the way that your system is operate to the way that your organization is operating as a 
as a system, but, but there's definitely value. Otherwise it wouldn't be operating that way. Right. And that value might be to protect the ego of senior leaders. It might be to, um, you know, keep knowledge siloed. So people create pockets of structural power. Right. But there's still a usefulness in that. And given that your organization exists, it's obviously doing something right. Right. And this is kind of like, we can sort of separate kind of normal organizational behavior from like organizational collapse, which does happen from time to time. And, and, and also, um, well, I won't go there, but yeah. So, so <laughs> I, 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 I think that um, when I think about what does it mean to be a socio-technical system, it just means to be really sensitive that um, there's value in the way things are now. And if you want people to change the way you're doing, you've got to work with the people and you've got to support not just the people that you're asking to change when you think about that on the operator level, but also you've got to support the leaders who are leading the change because they are also by necessity, by definition, moving towards something that is less certain than what they're doing now. Uh, because now is known, changing is unknown. And so there's a threat state associated with that. And so what, what it really is, is to say that to really understand what we need to do to, to improve our systems, we not only need the technology aspect of things, and I use technology very broadly, right? Technology is safety engineering. Technology is, you know, I mean, reliability. Technology is um, the practice of writing software, the practice of practicing law. Like technology is kind of these specific expert skills. And to, yeah. to, to, to adopt the right technologies, we also need to recognize that we need to help people transition, you know, cross the threshold, transition through the unknown so that they can get to the other side. And, and to me, that's a big part of the social part. And I want to say one more thing, because I think many of our organizations and our whole education system, and, and you know, this is, we're really, this is really deep here, but all of this stuff really supports experts solving technical problems in front of them, rather than stepping back and and looking holistically at the whole system. Mm. And so we're kind of swimming upstream already when it comes to, okay, how do we develop a systems view? How do we develop a kind of social view of what's really happening here? I feel like it's a social view that we've just, we, we, we've let lag a little bit. Like the, the technical side, I think that we've, and, and I'm obviously talking from a kind of, uh, safety, a kind of operational risk point of view, health, safety, environment, things like that. Like it, it, our, our background in, in safety is very much engineering. So right. we've come at it from a very engineered focus. And, and, and from a technical point of view, hey, we, we've nailed it. You know, we, we, we just, we've tech, we've, we've systemed the shit out of, out of safety. Like we really have. And we, We've now got to a point, you know, where most kind of most kind of major com countries in the world have have kind of plateaued on the rates that were killing people, and and actually we're we're starting to see an increase in in kind of mental health as we know around the world, like pretty much everywhere is struggling with with a mental health crisis. And for me, it's kind of like, well, because we're really good at this techno system side of things, but we're missing the social side of it, which is the bit just in front. And and, and when when it clicks in your brain, 
it really does open your eyes and you think, well, hang on a minute. Why have we not talked about this before? People design the work, people design the product, people design the processes, people design the technological stuff that's within our company. People buy our products, people buy our services. People are part of everything that we do, like literally everything that we do, no matter what company or business you're doing. But yet we've we've kind of gone down a route of trying to mop like a standardized approach to humans, like a standardization approach where actually it kind of reminds me of an old saying my grandma used to say was right now it's strangers folk, like because every person is different and every person looks at things that, that kind of divert that cognitive diversity. And we've gone, oh, let's let's kind of try and mold every single human into the same standardized approach, which I, I think has made us very fragile or very brittle. I think. Yeah. And I, I, um, let's see, there's a lot in there. Um, let me highlight one word that, that you said almost the exact same moment it came into my brain, which is the word plateau, right? I think anytime there's a plateau, that's a really good indication that we have, um, we've hit the limits of our current approach. And, yeah. and the thing that I was thinking about is, um, you know, you look at aviation safety over, over the decades and you look at this, you know, you can tell the story of aviation safety in a couple of, um, like a couple of eras. And, you know, there was the first, the first era was this kind of like, man, it's this experimental thing. It's the wild west. It's pretty crazy. Um, and then you had this era of like, like innovation and reliability, right? So like building better airplanes. And then you have this era of dealing with complicated systems, right? So, I mean, there's the famous story of, I think it's the B-17, you know, a pilot crashed that because uh, on, on a test flight or whatever, because they, they, they didn't follow the right procedures when something happened. And so lo and behold, now you get the, the rise of the checklist. And like a lot of us know that story. But then into the 70s and, and 80s in the U.S., you get, okay, well, the technology has basically been in some sense perfected, right? Like you've got these jetliners that are just un, like orders of magnitude, unbelievably reliable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sure, they still need maintenance and they still have kind of niggling issues. But, but then what you start to see is you start to see that the frontier of safety is in how the crew communicates together and, and their situational awareness. And, and I know some people don't like that word. And, but what, what I really mean is, having a shared mental model of what's happening. And so lo and behold, you know, that whole problem arises and then aviation solves it with crew resource management by teaching crew a different way of working together. And, and so, you know, aviation is a really an interesting field because it's so stereotyped and it happens at such scale. And um, the public cares so much about the safety of aviation that you have all of these factors that have kind of come together to to make it this, you know, this like very important and very visible problem to solve. But so, so the, the, the idea of training people to interact in a stereotyped way, that's not going to work in every industry, but the bigger idea of like, oh, we've got humans in these seats and we really need to attend to them, whether we're, whether we're attending to them in how we design a procedure or we're attending to them in like, man, if we're going to make a change that affects their job, like by golly, let's get their input, right? Like that's, and it's not, it's not rocket science, but it's, as you said, just being sensitive to the fact that there are actual people on the other side of the table here. Yeah. 
it just, it just it's just sensible like when when it clicks but then i say i say it's sensible like when i started in safety i was i was very much of the mindset oh god bob's just stupid oh steve's right. stupid as well and then by the end of the first year in the job you're kind of like all operators are just stupid and that's why they're operators. So now, and then, and I, I look back on that now, and I think, oh God, I can't believe I actually used to think like that. But right. like that just seemed to me like this natural thing that just kind of happened. Well, and I, 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 um, the the phrase that I use to describe this is um, is practical empathy. Like we all walk around, and we have this very kind of. Um, detailed view of our own experience, right? Like, oh, this person is trying to do this. I'm thinking this. They're not seeing this. Bob doesn't get it. As you said, Bob's just stupid, as you said. Um, We all have that very rich experience of our inner life. We assume that Bob doesn't have that, right? Like we assume that Bob's just being obstructionist or or whatever. But, and and I use this in the context of um, talking about resistance. I, I, I teach leaders about how to kind of work with resistance in a very practical way. And, and a lot of what that comes down to is realizing that, well, when we resist something, we think we're being very kind of, you know, rational and pro-social. And it's like, oh, these people are trying to oppose a policy on us that doesn't actually make sense for my context. But when other people resist us, we're like, yeah, they're stupid. They don't get it. And so part of it is just like, um, you know, it's like, learning to see your own thoughts and recognize them as just being like, oh, that's a story I'm telling. Like, that's not true. Like, let me get curious about what Bob's experience is. Like, and that, and when when you start to be able to make that switch, when you start to be able to say, huh, like, I wonder, I wonder what Bob, Bob's being really obstructionist here. I wonder what I'm not seeing that he that he's seeing. Um, yeah. It's so funny that you've just said practical empathy because- I wrote this post-it down the other day, which my daughter has chewed and, and I had to take out of her mouth. She's only, gosh, oh my God, she's a year in like a month. And um, and, uh, and and I took it out of her mouth and I, and I got it out. And I was like, where have you got that from? And I wrote down on a post-it, operational empathy. You probably can't see it, but it, and, I, and that was you know, post, post kind of reading the book and then post conversations and then a lot of other stuff like webinars and stuff. And I'm, I'm doing loads of work, reading loads of kind of research and white papers and stuff. And, and I kept thinking like, we need a better way to talk about what we're trying to say. Like, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say have empathy for the workforce, but then also, because I think that's something that I've highlighted. I, I do a lot of work in human organizational performance lately. And all the time, Chris, all the time we talk about, you know, leaders need to kind of have deference to the front line and they need to have empathy for the front line. And, and I get that. Yeah, 100%. And I agree. We, we're not very good at that. But also, I do think that the front line also needs to have a sense of empathy for leadership as well. And, and totally- that's what I thought. It's a two-way street. It's operational empathy. Yes, I, I agree with you 100%. And and this is actually something I was on Todd Conklin's podcast a couple of months ago. And this is okay, something yeah. I put, to, I, I put to him and I, I, I offer it as just something I'm no, I've noticed about the safety community where there is a very great attitude of don't blame the operator, right? Yeah. Something goes wrong. Don't blame the operator. But I think that that needs to be that needs to be flipped upward also right leaders operate under tremendous constraints yeah. um they are human now 
there are also things that happen when people get power that changes the way they behave, that reduces mm. their ability to have empathy. And, you know, we write about this in the book and it's biological. Like it's this that deep stuff. That was so eye opening that chat. That Isn't that cr- I was just like, oh my God. Right. That was unbelievable. It's, it's fascinating. And um, just this idea that, that just giving people power, uh, even a fleeting false sense of power mm. gives them liberty to behave in ways that we think of as generally antisocial. So, so that's not good. I like, I want to be on the record saying like, I don't like that, but I do think that, um, in the same way, and and Todd and I had a long conversation about where power ultimately resides in an organization. And, and I think that's a very, um, very interesting and squishy concept. And, but, but I will, what I will say is just echoing and supporting what you're saying is like, I really think when you look at a leader and and I work, I tend to work with people who are fairly senior. And so, you know, they're a VP at a big oil company. They're, um, you know, the general, I'm working with the general manager of digital transformation at Microsoft, a guy named Jason Barnwell. And the, 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 the constraints that they face are tremendous and um, their ability to successfully guide change in their organization really um, depends on their having a lot of uh, interpersonal support, different people in, in different ways. But like, they're just really, we have to support the whole human, whether it's a leader or an operator. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's something that I think you, you've obviously picked up for a reason, because I think that we, we, we lack that. I think that we, we, we forget that we, the safety profession also exists to help protect the safety of the board and you know if we're talking from a mental health and well-being point of view there's probably no more stressful role than than the ceo in a company that has all the responsibility all the decisions they're the one that you know we we kind of live in a world of like you say we try to push this no blame concept but ultimately blame exists and it will always exist because it exists at the top of the company. That CEO will ultimately be blamed if something went wrong. And, and I do think that we, we lack a sense of, em- sense of empathy sometimes when we have these conversations for the pressures of the board, for the pr- pressures of those leaders. And, and I do think that, yeah, 100%, get those leaders out of the boardroom, get them on the shop floor so they can really understand the context that that, that behavior is, is kind of... Um, operated within but also when you've got the workforce saying god why do they make those decisions oh my god what a stupid decision to make they also need to understand and have empathy for the context that influenced that decision and yeah go on go on i was going to carry on talking because you were sneezing so i was going to give you some more time but (laughs) you've stopped you're a very quick sneezer full full disclosure (laughs) i have a cold um (laughs) But we have the special uh, antiviral Zoom package, so you yes, shouldn't get yeah, it. Yeah, that's it. Um, <laughs> well, uh, you know, what, what I was going to say is, um, it's like I, and it's interesting, like, it, we have to do two things at the same time, right? We have to hold leaders accountable for the decisions they make, and we have to support them in uh, doing better work to make better decisions. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I realized after Meltdown came out and I started working with people in organizations doing more of this actual work is, um, again, this kind of goes back to what we talked about before, but 
just how well adapted leaders are to solving the problem in front of them, right? So, you know, again, most of the people I work with are kind of technical leaders of some kind. So they have some deep technical expertise. If you think about somebody who has a career doing operations in oil and gas, say, who then gets kind of, you know, up, up, promoted up the hierarchy, right? Well, why do they get promoted? They get promoted because they've been successful at solving the operational problems that come to them. Mm. And I think that that's very important. It's very important for leaders to be able to solve the problem in front of them. And it's very important for experts to be able to contribute with their expertise. But there is another kind of problem where I, I think that the usual way of operating is not nearly as effective. And I think this other kind of problem is becoming more and more important in as things get complex, as they get interconnected, um, as it gets harder to make changes, as there's more competitive pressures. And that is what I think of as like how, how experts can operate with influence rather than expertise. And I, I somewhat cheekily call these impossible problems. And I think these are problems where um, I define this as problems where a leader has a vision, but not the exact answer. Um, they don't control the people, so they can't sort of make people do the thing, which I think is true for a lot of these kinds of problems. And they don't control the overall context. So they don't control the, the you know, the regulatory infrastructure. They don't control the incentives. They don't control the way that the team is organized. There's all of these things they don't control. And so that's one of the things I'm really fascinated about, like, how can expert leaders, instead of solving problems with expertise, really understand when they are facing these kind of impossible problems and they, when they need to reach for tools of influence and engagement rather than their na natural tools of expertise to solve them? And I think that's part and parcel with what we're discussing because I do think what we, what we will really benefit from is kind of pushing or inviting, not pushing, but like really helping senior leaders see that, oh, this is a fundamentally different kind of problem. If you want to change your safety culture, that's not a problem you can solve with expertise. There are bits that require expertise, but fundamentally it's a problem of influence. And so how can you get more skilled at working with that? Yeah. How does that, how does that land with you? I love that. I love that because I think that is exactly what that's the, that's I, I've been saying, but as kind of, I suppose quite, cheekily as well that our profession or my profession as safety professionals are going through a bit of an identity crisis um in that we don't really know what we're here to do because we've been engineers for so long and now we're like oh, I, I keep engineering this but it's not really getting any better you know we, we we've got like oh we're, we're out of management systems now we can't make up any more management systems and how, how do we make this any better? And we started to kind of realize that actually these soft skills, as people talk about them, these influencing skills, these relational skills are skills that we probably have, haven't had for a very long time, or, or maybe some have, and, and we're a bit like, hmm, okay, we, we probably need to focus on this a bit more. And I, and I think that our profession is, in my opinion, is, is not doing enough to realize how important those things are because we can put the systems in place. We can put the RAMs and the risk set on all of this stuff in place, but ultimately they are trying to do one thing is influence the kind of, as David Proven would call it, the, the safety of work. 
actually what we think they did for many years is control work, yes. but they don't. They influence right. work because work is so emer- in the moment. It's emergent. Yeah, and I think that that is, and we we, we were talking about this stuff before, and and I think that when you look at why why do people write procedures, right? Like why do people do these things? So so much of the reason that people do that is to give to they they are trying to buy down. Um, psychological uncertainty. They are trying to create a sense of control rather than recognize that actually fundamentally we are not in control. And, and yeah. that's the truth that yeah. we're not even control of our own selves. I mean, the, you know, to, just to do like a really quirky deep dive. I mean, you know, what we know is that people's brains, you know, if, if I'm reaching for this pen or whatever, like, we know that my brain fires a signal of intent that I am not consciously aware of before my hand reaches for the pen, right? Mm. And so, I mean, that's wild, right? We have this view of consciousness as kind of omniscient, but even as people, we're not in control. Like we, we are these, this connection of these like inhibitory networks. And it's just like the, 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 the stuff we're learning from cognitive science is just like wild. And then to believe that you write a procedure, you hand it to some operator who might sit you know, a thousand miles away from you in a, in, in the field somewhere and that you are controlling how they're going to do that work. Like, no, that's, a, that's, that is a fantasy. Right. And, and it's not to say that it's not useful to have procedures. It's very useful, but it's even more useful when you divorce the having of the procedure from the belief that the outcome you're accomplishing is to control things. Yes. Yeah. It, it, uh, there's so much you said that what you that absolutely bang on like i think if we can accept that what we're trying to do through these systems is is influence then we we probably get more value out of them because we can appreciate that it is not a a tool of control it's a tool of influence so that then when something goes wrong we can start to understand the context that the reason why the procedure didn't the influence from the procedure wasn't strong enough to influence that situation yeah. because we're looking at it from a position of influence and not control. We can say, well, what were the other influencing factors that were stronger than that procedure? Totally. And, and, and I think that that's such a useful thing to say because, you know, I think of there's this trifecta of mistakes that happens after an incident oftentimes. Right. And it's like, it's three things, right? It's like you, they, people fire the operator or the person that they see as responsible um, they throw more money at the problem for a while and they develop additional safety systems, right? And so it's like, but very often the problem in the first place was that um, people weren't comfortable speaking up about issues, right? So you didn't have psychological safety. So firing the guy or, or the woman that made a mistake is not, not adaptive to that. It's often about not necessarily having more resources, but just like how you actually, like, do you use those resources for the right thing or, or the wrong? Do you use them for purely technical solutions or do you use resources to solve a problem holistically? And then like, you know what happens when you add a new procedure, a new safety system, you've just injected more complexity in the system, yeah. which yeah. is often part of the issue in the first place. And that's funny um, you say that because that is in the book club. Well, we, like I said, we had a meeting, the meeting on Wednesday and, and one of our, uh, members said exactly that. Like, so one of our questions is, what was your kind of aha moment 
And, and, they, and he said, well, my aha moment was definitely when I realized, oh my God, I'm trying to fix complexity, complexity with complexity. Like, and he was just yes. like, I, I didn't even realize that like through my entire career, I have gone problem solution is more, is more systems or solution right. is this is more, 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 more safety, more safety. And, and I've, and I've never looked at it and gone, maybe we need a little bit less safety, a little bit, or, or those safety systems, I suppose, or, or whatever, you know, he was talking from a point of view of procedures and paperwork and so on. And actually it's created such a complex, um, process um that that he was like oh my god like and it was an eye-opening moment for him that he got from your book um and i think another good example of that which is what you touch on in the book which actually there's also a very good podcast on uh on cautionary tales i don't know if you listen to that yeah i i i know it's great i know tim and we've 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 chatted a bunch and in fact i organized once a lunch with um, myself, Tim Harford, and Amy Edmondson in in oh London. Oh my god! Uh, I mean, that was a lunch. It was it was great. It was so fun. Oh we my just god. we just all had this like shared uh, this like kind of shared passion and different experiences and like everybody we, we were all a little bit feisty and all like really listening. It was it was a cool it was a cool experience. I, I, I wish that I was there not to get involved, but just to put a microphone in the middle of all three of you. And just press it was, record and then it was back fun. away. It was really fun. Amazing. But, but anyway, sorry, I, I derailed you. Yeah. No, 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 it's fine. The example about La La Land that you reference in the book, uh, I believe, if I remember rightly, and, and Tim Hartford does a great podcast on that as well. Yes, it's um, great. And, and I just, I will never forget, like, the end of that episode where he talks about how complex this, this, this whole process was that caused this issue. And then, and then at the end, he just says, and to fix that, they just added more complexity. Totally. totally. And I was just like, oh my God. Like we yeah. just, we, 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 we really struggle to get this, don't we? Like we're not great at realizing, oh, hang on, we're making it worse. Yeah. And, and exactly. And for people that don't, for, for people for whom just the word La La Land does not conjure this, this is the, the best pictures mix up at the Oscars in yeah. 2017, where, there were some design issues. There were some process design issues. There were like multiple envelopes announcing the winners floating around backstage. It was, it was a wild and um, uh, uh, situation replete with, with um, potential issues that, that came to fruition. But also very easy to get to that point. Like I think it's very easy to get to that, that like, point. Totally. You, you might listen to that or read the point that, that read the bit that you talk about it in the book, or you might listen to Tim Tim Hartford's podcast and be like, oh well, they're just and they're just idiots creating such a complex system. But it's like put yourself in their shoes, come back to that yeah, kind of empathy point exactly. of view. Exactly. Think about what they're trying to solve. The pressure of leaking a winner or losing the ticket for right. like a live event, one of the biggest events in the world but the biggest stars in the entire world yeah like the pressure is phenomenal and and i and we were talking about this again in the book club and i was thinking it would it would have been so easy to create that complex system because we're trying to stop anything going wrong yeah well and and that's i think the and that and we, we we call this in the book we we talk talk about the paradox of progress right it's this idea that Complexity actually gets us a lot that's really, really useful, but um, it, 
if we don't attend to the cost of it, if we don't attend to the fact that adding complexity adds this nonlinear cost that that often takes years to to um, to to emerge, but when it does, it's often catastrophic. Like that's the thing to be to be aware of. And, and there was a line that you said that I've got to post it on my wall just here to remind myself for, with my work is that transparency reduces complexity. Yeah. And I just thought, you know, that as a one-liner goes, I was like, that's a damn good one-liner. And that made me think back as I was, I, I was reminded of this when you were mentioning aviation. Like, I think that's also one thing that aviation do really well with their aviation safety reporting totally. system or whatever it's called. And that is industry-wide transparency. Like here's, yep. here, you can you can report to that kind of central body and, and they will react to that. And then where there's something significant, they'll do like a lesson to learn and, and the whole industry gets to see that. It removes that competitive nature from from kind of critical safety critical kind of processes and and it removes it from learning which i think is more important it yes. creates transparency which helps us deal with with complexity i i think that's a that's it's it's a great a great example of that and, and i think actually you know to talk to go back to the human elements of the system i mean I, I sort of teach when I'm when I'm taking leaders through a change. I just at a high level, I, I'll share that I, I teach really three things. One is to be curious about other people's experiences and where they are on a change journey. Because as a leader, as a safety professional, you often have spent a lot of time understanding the problem and thinking about solutions. But that may not be true. The operators, the people you're trying to influence, may not even know that. So the opportunity is to be really tuned into where they are and be curious about their experience and the place that they are. Mm. Um, another thing is to really develop, again, it's really grounded in curiosity, skills around understanding people's resistance and working with resistance in a different way. Because we often think of the goal is to overcome resistance, but I think of the goal is to celebrate resistance, right? It's to, to really learn as much as you can from it. Um, and then the third thing I think is that people... Um, and I think part of this comes back to business constraints, but part of it comes back to not wanting to admit that there's uncertainty that we're dealing with, instead wanting to move to a state of certainty. People will often have a solution and they will move to roll it out across their whole organization, you know, in kind of a one, one flip thing. And, and that can sort of, that inevitably leads to more resistance and, and slows you down. And I think the thing that I advocate for people is to really like, like, use FOMO, use the fear of missing out to like run experiments, refine your solution, do it with people who are excited to co-create with you and are going to share their insights. And then when you start to have the impact that you, you expect, or when you get to the point where you're having impact, whether that's, you know, saving uh, 5 million bucks a year on your reliability budget, on a big asset, on your maintenance budget, or, um, you know, reducing downtime or whatever, then you can start to get other people intrigued in your story. You can say, hey, like, by the way, our safety performance over here has gone from, you know, X to, to Y. And, um, you know, people are starting to measure those metrics and starting to look at them more carefully. And like, I wonder if this is something you're interested in getting involved in. And, and those kind of three things, like, to me, those are actually all about at least the first two, and I think the latter one to some extent, they are really all about transparency. It's all about you know really being being authentically curious about um, other people's other people's situations and experiences, so you can really understand where they're at. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, definitely. So much there. There is something you touched on in, I think it was point two or or the the earlier uh, side of point one in that you're kind of like, and and I think you meant you kind of touched on it earlier as well. When when we're talking around these kind of complex systems that we have in place in, in business, um, and, and I think a lot of the time in, in my conversations, I have a lot of the time we get safety professionals or people that are trying to do this, trying to kind of improve their, their safety and so on. A lot of the time they're talking about kind of going in and drastically removing a lot of this complexity or their safety management systems and all this. I think we call it clutter a lot of the time in, in safety. Again, that's from David Provan as well. Um, the kind of safety clutter and, um, all of these papers that actually are not having any influence or any impact on operational day-to-day work, but we think they are, um, but they're not, they're not. So let's just remove them. And, and then a lot of the people in like my profession really struggle with the resistance that they get back. And a lot mm. of the time I kind of, I'm kind of talking to the, the safety professionals and I'm saying one thing you're not remembering, I, I think, and one thing a lot of us don't remember is that complexity, that system, that safety management system, whatever it is, provides a sense of psychological safety for those leaders because that's the thing that they think is keeping them safe. So all of those rag charts, the incident dashboards, and the we're counting how many risk assessments we've done this year and, 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 and all of that stuff that, that's not necessarily delivering value. Right it delivers a sense of psychological safety for them because they feel they can sleep at night because they think that they are kind of safe. So it's kind of like a false sense of safety in a way. Um, and we struggle with that resistance because we go in and we, well, so, you know, I don't know, we've read Sidney Decker's book and the Woolworths experiment or something. And we've got, oh my God, let's have no, no procedures, just trust people to do their job. And we go in and we rip it all out. And I'm just like, whoa, calm down. These people, have, they only know that's how they operate for the last 30, 40 years. And you've just ripped right. that out. Right. And that, I think that's such a deep point. And that goes back to too, that supporting of the leadership, the cadre yeah. of leaders and how important that is. And because the phrase that keeps coming to mind is um, Lee Clark, who was a a, a, um, a graduate student with Charles Perot, who who Chick Perot, who we interviewed for the book and his his normal accident theory really forms the uh, the core of what we what we build our framework off of. But um, his his student who is now, you know, an emeritus professor um, or a very, very senior professor. Uh, he wrote a book called, uh, Lee Clark wrote a book called Fantasy Documents. I think it's actually called Missing Impro- Mission Improbable, uh, using right. fantasy documents to tame disaster. And, and it's exactly this. It's that like a big part of what the kind of, um, it's like, uh, it's almost like tinsel, right? Or, or it's, it's like, you know, there's this phrase security theater, which I think people use to describe, um, what it's like to go through an airport these days. Um, you know, you look at the US and like, I mean, obviously travel has been affected in the last little while, but um, you know, before that you'd have you'd so much resources, the TSA, you've got all this screening, these machines, and then, you know, they will run these red team things and it's like, they can, whatever, some huge percentage of the red team exercises are successful at sneaking contraband through security. And so the idea is, well, 
what does the security do? Well, it makes us feel comfortable. And, and it's kind of the same thing. It's not to say that, again, that those things aren't useful because you really mm. do want visibility in the system, but visibility in the system can turn into bureaucracy and, and that's much less kind of useful. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I keep mentioning David. I have no, I'm not, I'm kind of like his biggest fan lately, but there's something I had a post it somewhere, but it's gone. There's something he said today that I thought, Oh, he's a compliance over impact. So I think when he was talking about compliance, like from his point of view, more those systems and the, the kind of, um, yeah, safety management system, policies, procedures, et cetera. Like, and I, I like the way he kind of put it, it's compliance over impact. It's not compliance versus impact, you know, or get rid of compliance because you, you just want to have impact. It's, it's when, when it goes wrong when you, when you value compliance yeah. over impact. And I thought that was a really good way of putting it. Yeah, that is a good way of putting it. So what are you, to kind of bring this to in a loop, what are you kind of working on now? So you, you said you're working a lot more on kind of organizational change uh, and that's your, that's your kind of bag at the moment. Yeah, and it's, it's I mean, it, 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 it deeply ties into this work, right? I mean, I think the consequence of the, if you, if you take as a given that the world is getting more complex, then the consequence is, well, we've got to solve different problems. We've got to solve problems in a different way. And I think that there's, you know, two, there is one, how this is like a fractal problem. So I'm going to get really wonky for a second, right? One of the things is like, okay, well, we've got to take, we, we have to help organizations that have historically been very bureaucratic, procedural. We've got to help them become more adaptive, right? To, mm. to um, decentralize decision-making authority as much as possible while at the same time centralizing learning. And that's a, that is a big transformational change for a lot of organizations. Um, interestingly, some organizations do that very well, right? Like, you know, the, the, the big tech companies, they, they kind of do that natively. Um, and, and, and there's, there's a lot to say about that. And I think a lot to say about how, why they have managed to be so disruptive, so big, so fast. Um, but the other part is really supporting leaders who are guiding that kind of change. Because it, it, like I've been saying, it really does require this fundamental rethinking of, well, what are the skills that a modern leader needs? And, and it's, you know, you take somebody with an engineering background and you don't wanna take that engineering background away from them. They need to understand the system but they also need to understand that they're not facing an engineering problem anymore. They're not building a bridge. They're, you know, building a, a factory for people to innovate how they build bridges. Right. It's like, mm -hmm. it's a very, it's a, it's a different level of the problem. And so, you know, I've been doing a couple of things that are really, really interesting. Um, one is um, just kind of taking, taking groups through this work. So teaching them some actual tools like, Hey, you know, if, if this seems like the problem you face, here are some actual things you can do and sort of doing a deep dive in, in their context. Um, I've also, for the first time, I'm taking a, like a cohort of seven or eight people um, through a little mini course, which is like bits of content and then bits of interaction where we're kind of nice. um, doing these like working groups around, okay, well, how is change showing up in your context? And so I'm really excited about that. Um, and then doing, of course, you know, consulting work with that tends to be with more senior leaders at, at bigger companies who, um, you know, really, they really do have a, a transformational change problem in front of them. And, you know, attached to that problem is, 
you know, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars of value that they're looking to capture by operating in a new way over some, some time scale. So mm. um, yeah, that's the kind of three, the sort of three prongs of what I'm doing, which is, it's pretty, I, I, I'm really excited about it. You can probably hear in my voice, like it's yeah, just, I, I think it's, um, one of my needs is to have an impact. And so um, one of the things that I wanted more of with Meltdown is I wanted people to be in a position where they could more easily actually make the changes that we talk about in the book. And so I feel like my work now is kind of contributing to that, that need to have impact. Mm. Yeah. I, 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 and I think change management is, I'm not a fan of that kind of phrase. No, me neither. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I agree. It kind of needs to be like change. I don't know, success or successful change. I don't know, but anyway, it's like that, that kind of change management, for lack of a better phrase, um, it's just so fundamental. Again, I think this is something that we lack in safety as well. Like fun, a lot of what we do is about change, is about kind yeah. of mitigating change, I suppose, as, as we go through and making change successful. It's a hell of a lot of what we do in, in our roles as safety professionals. And I think we've come at this as well from a very linear kind of uh step-by-step point of view and and don't get me wrong i'm not criticizing the work because i I i've took a lot of of stuff from it but like uh i think is it john cotter's work like the eight steps of change and stuff like that which there's a lot in that that i quite like but i think people take it and go step one step two step three and i'm like it's not as simple as that (laughs) like it's really dynamic and it ebbs and flows and it loops back on yeah because it's human Right. That's yeah, that you get yeah, to the root yeah. of it. It's human. And I just I want to I, I I actually was was kind of co-creating this with a client a couple of weeks ago. And I really like it. And let me share it with you and, and you tell me how it lands. So I think of a lot of work as having three components, mind, hands and heart. Right. And I think change is no exception. And with change, we often have the mind down. Right. We have a strategy. Right. We're going to you know change our safety model from X to Y. We're going to change how we do this. Um, we're also pretty good at the hands, right? Which is the, the change management. That's right. Like, I, and every time, anytime somebody says change management, all I can think of is a Gantt chart, right? That's like the only thing yeah, that yeah. comes into my mind. It's like, and, and, and we're good at that, right? Organizations are generally good at running big projects up to a point. Um, but I think what, what needs more attention is the heart. Uh, that's how, what do, what are people afraid of with this change? What do people yes. need support with? Um, you know, what, what do we have to do to let people know that we see that they're afraid and that they have our support? Um, and they might be afraid for really good reasons, right? It's like, yeah, your job is going to change. Um, we are going to be asking you to do new skills. Um, you know, we, 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 we really can't help that. We need, we need your job to change for this company to be around in 10 years. And like, really rooting things in the meeting, the meaning and the problem and the challenge and connecting with people as humans. You kind of were talking before about um, why we don't do that. And I think one of the reasons we don't do that is because it is uncomfortable. Like the F word, feelings, right? We we don't like dealing with feelings very much. It's hard, it's uncomfortable. It really requires a different stance. And so I see a lot of what I'm doing as um, helping leaders that know that they or are starting to know that they need to do that kind of work, helping them do that, supporting them through that work. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Can I tell people where, where they can find a little bit more about me and, and this work? Of course you can, mate. Of course you can. So, you know, I'm on Twitter at Chris Clearfield. I'm on LinkedIn. 
Um, but if you really, if, if, if any of this stuff landed with you, um, if you go to chrisclearfield.com slash impossible, you can download a little cheat sheet on solving impossible problems. And um, it's like two or three pages and it just kind of goes through at a high level, like, all right, here are the, what you want to think about in terms of being curious, working with resistance and, and running experiments instead of thinking in terms of monolithic solutions. So um, yeah, so that would be a great place for, for people to, to join. And then of course you can sign up for my mailing list and, and all that good stuff too. Chrisclearfield.com forward slash impossible. You got it. Yeah. I just want to make, I'll put it in the, in the notes so that people can get it as well. Great. So when you're, so they don't have to, they don't have to take a note while they're driving, which would not be safety conscious. No, exactly. Exactly. And also I want to download the cheat sheet as well. (laughs) There there you go. There you go. Um, Can, can I, I know this is not typical, but can I, can I kind of put a question to you here at the end? Of course you can. You know, so we've talked about a lot of different things and you reflected on different aspects of, of the work, but I'm just curious, you know, from your perspective, like, what do you see as the, as the, the biggest challenge in your work these days? The biggest challenge um, in, in my, can I kind of answer it from two different perspectives? Yeah, you got it. So I'll take the answer from my kind of work as a safety professional in my day job. Um, I think I think the biggest challenge there is probably everything that we've just discussed. It's kind of getting people to really understand the social human side of work, like trying to try and take a bit more of a human centered approach when historically we've approached everything from a very engineering point of view, uh, problem solve problem, you know, like nail hammer done um, and getting people to understand that, you know, people are people and they're all strange and they're all different. And, and, and it's chaotic and it's messy, but ultimately that is what's made your business succeed over so long is because they deviate every day and, yeah. and, and, you know, and, and getting them to accept the, the biggest challenge for me is getting them to accept what I know in that they're not following your procedures. And they're not following your risk assessments. You think they are, but they're not. But every day they're succeeding. And, and getting them to understand that's probably my biggest challenge, that more human-centered approach. Um, and then from my other side of things I do with Project Miletium and, and rebranding safety is more working with safety professionals and helping them in their careers and their jobs uh, and trying to kind of guide them into, again, this more social way of thinking in, in the safety profession the the biggest issue there is uh, well there's a lot of issues but i think the biggest issue there is is actually to like what i was saying earlier is understanding what we exist for like we've our, our training uh professional bodies you know every everything is is that same engineered approach and historically we have come at safety from a very compliance based point of view and getting people in the safety profession to move away from this assumption that people are stupid um, and that we just need to blame, shame and retrain um, and, and, and we getting them to move away from that, which is very similar to my kind of operational challenges as well. But safety right. professionals are very, like, it's, it's like trying to say you must leave your daughter now. Like that's how emotionally attached we are to like, people are stupid and it comes down to Chris like the slightest things of like pictures or videos on LinkedIn 
been like people doing so-called stupid or unsafe stuff and then all the comments being like oh my god they're idiots why would they do that they're putting a risk on the line they're putting their lives on the line and stuff and and i mean i commented on one a few months back and jesus christ that i'm, I'm having to move house every month because of the witch hunt like that's how bad it is and all i said was you know all i see is two guys just getting the job done within the context of that moment like and we yes. we cannot tell what that context is from this video and then oh my god that everyone was like you're a head of health and safety like you you don't deserve to be in that role and i'm just and that that's how emotionally attached we are to it like people get lynched for, for kind you know, of saying that. you know what this reminds me of and and um, I'm just aware we're at time, so I'll keep this short. But we have this we have this story in the book of Semmelweis, of, of uh, the guy who figured out that washing your hands in chlorine bleach would prevent infections during childbirth. Yes, um, that's a great example. And, you know, so much of, I think there was so much resistance, right? I mean, and he went, he went crazy and uh, was beaten to death in an asylum. So I hope that doesn't that's not doesn't portend for your story. But, I can really relate to that story if I'm honest and that poor guy. <laughs> yeah. But, but if you if you if you sort of think about, well, OK, what what was happening for the cadre of people that he was trying to influence, you know, to get over the hump, to get to see things his way. Um, you know, he was sort of beating people over the head with the data and and they would have to admit that they had spent these you know preeminent uh, surgeons, obstetricians, they would have to admit that they had spent their careers killing people because they didn't know about this thing. And, yeah. and it actually strikes me as like, there's just a deep identity threat in getting people to shift. And so yeah. just in talking with you now, I'm just wondering what's the role of curiosity in this, you know, like, well, like what, like, what do they see? Do they, do they see that people are using their procedures? How do they measure that? You know, just kind of like, like starting, with where they are instead of with where, where you are. Mm. Yeah, no, I like that. Yeah. And, and apply, apply the same principles that we would to kind of operational safety to our own change yeah. within our profession. Right. And you're not going to get everybody to, to, you know, there's something very comforting in being, being on the superior side of the equation, you know, like mm. criticizing the person that's, you know, hanging off a railing and doesn't have his has his hard hat clipped to his belt or whatever it is. It's power, isn't it, to your earlier point? Right. And this, and yeah. You talk about in the book, safety professionals love this sense of power. I, I put a photo of of my floor earlier on LinkedIn a few days ago, which is just full of white papered books and and all of this stuff because I'm trying to, you know, I'm in one and then I'm in the other trying to pick bits out. And I've just put, is anyone else's brain kind of like this physical representation on the floor? Um, and one guy was like, oh, you know, watch those trip hazards. And I was like, oh God, someone had to bloody say it, didn't they? And and I think he was joking, but like, um, and then he said, you know, oh, I'm, I'm just here to keep you safe. And, I, and I, he may be tongue in cheek, I don't know. Um, but that is the kind of that's the safety professional in a nutshell is that we think that this we get a sense of power in that oh james is a bit stupid i need to tell him that he could trip over that stuff that he's just put on his own office floor like i know it's there thank you i don't need you to tell me there's a sense of power in it and i think we love that i think we're a bit addicted to it yeah and it, it's power and and i don't want power carries a lot of baggage with it so i i don't i i I don't want to use the word lightly, but one thing it is, is it's it's moving towards certainty, right? It's moving towards a view of certainty. If there's no books on the floor, you can't trip, right? That creates a state of certainty. And 
you know, we have this line in the book that's something like, and it's, it's not a fair line, but it's, I'm going to paraphrase it, something like, you know, sort of BP pre-Deepwater was more concerned about coffee spills than they were about oil spills. And, 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 you know, it's wrong, but it captures something, which is like the risk that you can easily control, the risk that you, the, and, and here it is, the risks that you can control, yes, it is useful to, to spend resources to buy down those risks, but you can take the set of risks that you can control and you can control them exquisitely and you will still not have controlled your system's risk. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so being able to admit that you're actually not in control, that is such a hard thing to do, particularly from a profession that really emphasizes control as one of its governing principles. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I've got like another 50 questions off the back of that little car. I could talk to you all day, Chris. I really could. Um, well, let's, I, I mean, we should, we should do something again. I mean, this is really, definitely. this is fun. Um, I really, I, I, you know, you're, I really appreciate you asking me to do this. I appreciate you choosing Meltdown for your book club. Um, you know, my need, my needs to have an impact. And so it's really nice to be able to, to talk about these things in a way with an audience that's, I think, probably generally very receptive to that and really um, interested in having an impact themselves. So thank you for the opportunity. No worries. And I I think, and the majority of of the audience of rebound safety are the younger side of the safety profession as well. So actually I think it's really powerful to get someone like yourself on to talk about this stuff and, and kind of hit them with it before they kind of get in, indoctrined into the way of thinking that we all have been um, for many years. Um, but yeah, yeah. Oh, I could talk about it all day, but and let's not because it's quarter to eight where I am. I'm going to go spend some time with the family, and I suspect Wonderful. you've got loads of work to do. Uh, being, it must be about eleven o'clock ish near where you are, half eleven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, mate. So thank you very much. You've already kind of told us where to go um, to get to get your stuff. So I'll link all that in the description um, so everyone can get it. But otherwise, thank you very much for your time, mate. James, this was great. Thank you. I'm, I appreciate the invite and I appreciate your work. Okay, Beeps, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chris. What a lovely guy. Great conversation. Kind of conversation we could have continued on for a very long time. Um, But hey, so thank you very much, Chris, for coming on. Um, If you enjoyed that conversation, please go and give us a rate and review on iTunes or give us a follow or share or whatever it is. If you think of one person that would like to hear uh, my conversation with Chris, please share it with them. All of that really helps us uh, improve the content and uh, increase awareness. Don't forget to check out Paradigm Human Performance, HSC subscription, and their learning organization webinar. Otherwise, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next week. Safe. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson. Thank <laughs> you.